This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd like to thank you all for being here. My name is Mary Fifleece. I'm an instructor of history, and I'm the global education coordinator. Um, I'd like to, first of all, thank our speaker for being here, Mr. Alan Berenberg, whom I will introduce in just a little bit. Um, there are a few people I'd like to thank uh, first for both their help and for being here. First, I'd like to acknowledge and thank uh, Dean Sylvia Jenkins, who is the dean of the library, who allowed us to host uh, both the exhibit here as well as the reception that we're going to have afterwards. Um, I'd like to thank our extraordinary librarians, Troy Swanson and Lee Summerling, who helped us put this exhibit together. And I'd also like to thank David Deitemeyer, the Dean of Academic Initiatives and Accountability, as well as uh, Dean Wally Franzek, Walter Franzek, the Dean of Liberal Arts, who unfortunately cannot be here. And I'd like to acknowledge Dr. Terry Ludwig, uh, the Vice President for Academic Affairs, as well as Mr. Bob Sterkowitz, uh, the Chief Financial Officer of the college. And thank all of you as well for being here. Um, we're so pleased to have this exhibit, this traveling exhibit from Perm 36, a labor camp in Perm, Russia, which is uh, in the edge of the Ural Mountains, kind of where, where um, uh, West meets East, so to speak, where Europe becomes Asia. And uh, it just so happened that we arranged to have this, the Global Education arranged to bring this exhibit here, and that the One Book, One College uh, uh, team selected the George Orwell novel 1984 as its selection for the year. It kind of came together um, very nicely. And of course, for those of you that have read the novel, you'll know that um, the Gulag legacy is very Orwellian. Orwell based um, a lot of his writing of 1984 off of the former Soviet Union. Um, and so when I traveled to Perm in June of 2006, I was very moved by the stories of the survivors. Um, and the idea that most of, most, I'm sure Alan will talk about this as well, that much of the rest of the world does not know very much about this. And that indeed, most, many Russians do not know about, uh, do not know much about this. It's known as the forgotten Holocaust for a reason. Um, President Vladimir Putin of Russia said not too long ago that history should be positive. I'd like you to reflect on that for a moment. History should be positive. Um, so it, I feel that we really cannot ignore uh, atrocities of this magnitude. If our history speaks for how we evolve as a civilization, what does it suggest about all of us if we ignore uh, such, such a story? But luckily, there are people who, do not, uh, who are not ignoring, who are telling this story. And uh, one such person is our speaker today, Mr. Alan Berenberg, who is a researcher at University of Chicago, who is currently completing his doctoral dissertation. He told me that he has seen the light at the end of the tunnel. He's almost done. And uh, the title of his work is From Prison Camp to Mining Town, The Gulag and Its Legacy in Vorkuta from 1940 to 1965. He'll be giving us a general overview of the Gulag system as well as discussing his own work. And there will be time for questions uh, afterwards, so please, uh, please save them. And with that, I'd like to welcome Mr. Berenberg. Thank you, Mary. I hope all of you can hear me um, just fine out there. How's my, how's my volume? Um, first of all, I want to thank Mary um, for having me here. And it's a great honor um, to be asked to, to speak at, the, at this exhibit. Um, and I want to thank all of you for coming to listen. The exhibit in the library that, that you see today that will be here for the month of March is really a fantastic opportunity, and I encourage all of you to take some time to go through it and, and look at the installations. Um, I've been asked to give a brief talk about the Gulag today. Um, 
over the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to try and introduce the phenomenon of the gulag in a very general way. Um, I will address four major questions. First, what was the gulag? Second, who were the prisoners who were in the gulag? Third, what was life in the daily life in the gulag like? And fourth, what was the legacy of the gulag? Um, after all of that, um, I will open up the floor to questions, and I encourage all of you to, to, to please ask any questions that may come up during the talk. Um, I'm going to try and speak as briefly as possible. So to begin with, what was the gulag? The word gulag is, at first glance, a fairly benign term. It is an acronym that stands for the main administration of camps. In many ways, the gulag was, part of, was a part of the government of the Soviet Union like any other. It employed bureaucrats, received a portion of the state budget, produced reports, and attempted to meet economic targets. Yet, in several key respects, it was an institution unlike any other, because it has come to stand for human suffering on a level that is almost unparalleled in modern history. If George Orwell had known the term gulag, he might very well have put it into a dictionary of newspeak, the, the, the language of the dystopian novel 1984, because this gulag is this seemingly benign acronym that stands for the destruction of human lives. The gulag was a system of prisons, labor camps, and exile settlements that existed in the Soviet Union from approximately 1930 until 1960. It was, to some degree, a prison system like that of any other country, set up to punish and rehabilitate Soviet criminals, people convicted of crimes like theft, murder, and embezzlement. On the other hand, the gulag had a distinctly political function, to isolate and punish those accused of being so-called enemies of the people, those who were accused of thinking or acting against the Soviet state. People who told political jokes, showed up late for work, uh, or spoke out against injustice could all be accused of being enemies of the people and swept up into the camps. The gulag was also an economic institution where prisoners were employed to build cities, factories, railroads, and all kinds of construction projects at a brutally fast pace. Thus, the gulag was a system that had penal, political, and economic functions. Now, I'd like to show you here a map of the gulag, um, which shows some of the major camps. Um, to answer the question, if you were to look at this map and say, where was the gulag? Well, the answer was, it was everywhere. Um, it was all over the Soviet Union. It was stretched from Varkuta in the north to camps in Karaganda in Kazakhstan and camps in, in Central Asia in the south. It stretched from Moscow in the west to Kalima and Magadan in the east. Um, it was in major cities. There were prisoners working on the streets of Moscow um, on a daily basis through much of this period. And there were prisoners working in the most godforsaken backwaters of, of Russia um, and the Soviet Union. Um, now, now that we've looked a little bit at the geography, I'd like to introduce a little bit of sort of the scale of what we're talking about. And I've prepared a few figures just to help you sort of orient yourself in the kind of scale of repression that we're talking about of prisoners. So first of all, arrests. There were, it's very difficult to estimate, but there was some, something around 20 million people arrested from 1930 to 1941. Um, in 1930 to 1931, which was just a two-year period, almost 2,000 peasants were sent into exile, and that's just, that's just a sample of two years. Um, the number of prisoners in the camps varied greatly, but um, 
To take, for instance, the year 1953, there were 2.4 million prisoners in Soviet prison camps and colonies during that time. And to give you some idea of the kind of mortality figures we're talking about, um, from 1930 to 1956, a 25-year period, at least 1.5 million people died, mostly from hunger and exposure and disease. But, of course, these are estimates. That's, that's a minimum. Um, the, the Russians were, the Soviets were never very good at keeping records on anything and especially about their camps. So we sort of have to approximate um, exactly how many people died. Um, another sort of startling figure is that 800,000 prisoners, at least 800,000 prisoners were shot outright, executed between 1930 and 1953. And most of those were executed during a single two-year period from 1937 to 1938. So um, the overall scale is difficult to Essentially, in, in the 1930s, one out of every two families in the Soviet Union had a family member arrested. Um, so even if someone in your immediate family wasn't arrested, chances are you, you knew somebody who was, absolutely, at least one person. Why was the Gulag created? As I said earlier, it served penal, political, and economic functions. But the reasons for creating it were almost entirely political. In 1929, Joseph Stalin, who you see in the center here, um, Joseph Stalin unleashed a revolution from above that was meant to transform the Soviet Union from an economic backwater into a superpower in a matter of years. In order to do this, he and his closest advisors essentially declared war inside the Soviet Union on their own population. Um, Soviet peasants were herded into collective farms either by choice or by force anyone accused of resisting joining a collective farm was liable to be arrested and either sent to a camp or sent into exile um, here these peasants would live with their families in very poorly organized settlements often they were simply dropped off in the middle of the tundra and told build yourselves, build, build yourselves houses, build yourselves a town they had nothing, no food nothing, you know, barely even tools to, to do this. As you might imagine, it, it was many, many people died in this way. Um, in the cities, Stalin initiated forced industrialization um, and the construction of new factories and industries at an impossible pace. When construction lagged behind the pace that was set, as it inevitably had to because it was impossible, scapegoats were found, arrested and sent to labor camps. Thus, it was to a great degree, it was Stalin's revolution from above that began in 1929 that led to the creation of the Gulag. The system of prisons, exile settlements, and labor camps continued to expand over the course of the 1930s and 1940s. Stalin, as dictator, constantly found new enemies to be unmasked and punished. Thus, even though many people died in the Gulag, there was rarely a shortage of new human material to take the place of those who died. But it was not simply Stalin and his closest advisors who were responsible for so many arrests and executions and destroyed lives. Soviet society itself became entirely dysfunctional and paranoid as fear of arrest gripped everyone. In this atmosphere, Soviet citizens denounced each other, and these denunciations more often than not led to arrests and executions. Neighbors denounced their neighbors. Workers denounced their bosses. And children even denounced their parents and vice versa. This is what, in my opinion, is most frightening about the Gulag and Soviet terror. Not that Stalin set out to destroy his enemies, 
Um, dictators, that's, you know, fairly, dictators unfortunately do that all the time. But what is most frightening is that ordinary, perfectly decent Soviet citizens turned on each other and sent each other to, and sent each other to the camps. As Orwell might have, might, have, might have put it, it suggests that Big Brother is in all of us. Um, now, the Gulag became so large that it began, began to play an important economic role in the country in its own right. Um, prisoners were used for all sorts, of, all sorts of projects that would have been difficult or impossible for, to be undertaken with free labor. So, for instance, they were used to build the White Sea Canal, for instance, which was um, a canal built to connect the White Sea and the Baltic Sea. Um, you see here, maybe a little bit faint, but you can see prisoners in a line moving earth in wooden sort of homemade wheelbarrows. Um, this, was a, this was a massive project. It involved about 170,000 prisoners working over a three-year period, to, mostly to just simply to move earth. Um, and it was considered to be a great economic success for the Soviet Union. Uh, never mind that at least 25,000 prisoners died during its construction, and the canal itself was mostly useless. It was, it's, it stand, it's still there extant today, but it was built in, to such a depth that it was basically impossible to use for shipping. Um, and you, know, you see the kinds of incredible human costs that went into these, to this, these completely pointless economic projects. Um, some, of, some of the kinds of economic projects that followed were, for instance, prisoners were sent to mine gold in Kalima, a region in, in uh, northeastern Siberia, really one of the most isolated and, and difficult environments on the earth. Um, you see them here. This must be the summertime because they're, they're, not, they're really not bundled all that much. This is probably a propaganda photo, by the way. But, I mean, you see the kinds of conditions that they were working in. They were, they was, they were basically mining by hand without any kind of machinery. Um, and this was, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of prisoners died in, in, in Kalima. Um, another example I'll show you here is a picture of, this is from 19, the 1940s. You see a couple of prisoners here um, mining coal. Um, Again, this is this is a this is a propaganda photo. They're actually using machinery, um, which was unusual because most of this work was done by hand, um, if you know, perhaps by horse if they were lucky. And so we just kind of see the kinds of examples of, of economic projects that the, the Gulag was used to construct. Um, now that we have some idea of what the Gulag was, I'd like to turn to talk a little bit about who the prisoners were. Now, this here this is a sketch. Um, by a former Gulag prisoner named Jacques Rossi, who, um, who was French, um, who spent about 20 years in the Gulag from the 1930s to the 1950s, and in fact wrote um, a, a Gulag handbook, if you can believe it, which is a, a sort of, a, if you happen to find yourself in the Gulag, this is what you need to survive. Um, includes, it's an absolutely brilliant work. It includes sketches um, like this one that, that Jacques drew, and um, you know, sort of definitions of prisoner lingo. Um, it's at times humorous, at times devastating. It's really quite an incredible work. Um, anyway, so I, I introduced this figure that he drew um, of, a, of a typical gulag prisoner um, to make a point, which is that um, beneath this bundle of rags and clothing, um, we cannot see who this is. We do not know whether it, was, whether it is a man or a woman. We do not know the age of this person. We do not know what ethnicity this person is. And it's really a fitting depiction of a prisoner because really the Gulag was a universal institution in that all kinds of people 
went, were sent there and spent time in the camps. Um, there were factory workers, government bureaucrats, artists, engineers, teachers, soldiers, students, peasants, were all liable to be arrested and sent to the gulag. Um, the, poorest, the, the poorest of Soviet citizens, homeless people, the unemployed, were swept up from the cities and sent to the gulag. But also some of Stalin's closest advisors ended up in the gulag as well. It was a truly equalizing institution in that way. Um, social class or occupation protected, protected no one from being sent to the gulag. The Soviet Union was, of course, an, a multi-ethnic empire, and the gulag was also multi-ethnic. Um, just to give a sampling of the kinds of ethnicities that were sent to the gulag, there were Russians, Ukrainians, Poles, Chechens, Uzbeks, Koreans, Germans, Chinese. I mean, just, I could go on at length, probably for five minutes, simply listing the different national groups that, that, that were sent to the gulag. Um, all, it was an institution that, that imprisoned prisoners of all religions, including large representations of Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Um, although more men than women were sent to the gulag, gender did not protect anyone either. Um, families were torn apart. Mothers were separated from their young children and sent to the camps. The children would be taken to awful orphanages where their, their chances of survival were often very poor. Um, age was no protection either. Children, teenagers were sent to the gulag, as were, as were pensioners. Um, so just to reemphasize this point, I mean, this sketch really represents what was a typical gulag prisoner, and that it could, it was, could have been anybody. Prisoners in the gulag were arrested for all sorts of crimes. Um, they generally came from two types, um, what, what have come to be known as criminals and politicals. Um, criminals included people who would have been imprisoned in, in virtually any society, murderers, rapists, um, uh, thieves, people, you know, people guilty of assault would be sent to the gulag. Pe um, people guilty of economic crimes like fraud and embezzlement were also sent there. But to this group of criminals um, must add a very large group of people whose activities were considered criminal in, in, the Soviet, in the Soviet Union but would not have been, but were arrested for things so trivial that they would hardly have um, called for incarceration anywhere else. Um, for instance, um, I mean, even very tiny, tiny thefts of food uh, could be punishable by up to 25 years imprisonment after 1947. So hundreds of thousands of Soviet peasants who in, in 1947 to 48 were starving because there was a famine um, were sent to the gulag simply because they stole a potato, literally just one potato from a field, a field that they themselves worked as collective farmers. And these people were sent to the gulag often for terms of 25 years. I mean, it's quite, it's quite difficult to imagine. Um, then, to add to these criminals, there were also political prisoners, politicals. Um, these were Soviet citizens, usually who were convicted of so-called anti-Soviet activities. Um, a very small percentage of political prisoners in the Gulag actually had done something that could be, could be legitimately considered a political crime, that, that, was, that was actually oppositional, that, you know, distributing literature, you know, pamphlets denouncing Stalin, for instance. But, in fact, the vast majority of political prisoners were not really political prisoners in any way because they had not in any way resisted um, the political authorities in the Soviet Union. Um, someone who could, you know, for instance, telling a joke about Stalin could get you 10 years, maybe if you were lucky, maybe 20 years. Um, 
tens of thousands of people were given sentences of five to, five to eight years simply for having a family member who had been arrested and sent to the gulag. There's actually a category for belonging to the family member of an enemy of the people was a crime. Um, if you were late to work or repeatedly absent to work, you could also be sent to the gulag as a political prisoner. Um, even being captured as a prisoner of war by the Germans during World War II was a, was a political crime against the Soviet state because it, was, it would not be possible for Soviet citizens to have, been, to have been captured. They must have surrendered voluntarily, and this, therefore, was a political crime. So hundreds of thousands of former Soviet prisoners of war who had spent years in, in German prisoner of war camps, when they came home, were greeted with being sent to the Gulag for another 10 years. Um, now, I'd like to just present a couple of just talk about a couple of prisoners in, in a little bit of detail just to give you some idea of, of, the, of, the pers of some personal narratives. Um, the first is Simeon Vilinsky. Um, Vilinsky was a promising young student at Moscow State University, the finest institution in, in the Soviet Union, uh, where he began his studies in 1945. One afternoon in 1948, at the age of 20, Vilinsky was out in the country with some friends. Caught up in the moment, he recited a satirical poem that he wrote about Stalin, which ended with the line, agents are all around, and Stalin among them is the first. One of his companions that day reported him to the secret police, and he was soon arrested. After a nine-month investigation in which Bielinski was held in some of the worst isolation prisons in Russia and miraculously survived, he was eventually convicted of anti-Soviet agitation and of having terrorist intentions. Um, he, his sentence was 10 years in a prison camp. Um, as a, a young intellectual living in Moscow, he was sent to northeastern Siberia to Kalima to mine gold, where he spent, um, I believe, eight years uh, before being released in 1955. And you see here a picture of Vilinsky in the 1940s, I believe that's in the 1940s, and a picture of him in 1998. Um, and um, he actually runs a publishing house um, dedicated to preserving the memory of, of gulag survivors and of, and of publicizing the gulag um, for, for future generations. Um, another example I'd like to introduce is um, Alexander Klein. Um, Klein was born in 1921 in Kiev, Ukraine, in a Jewish family. In 1939, he began his studies as a freshman at Leningrad Thea Theatrical Institute. He wanted to be an actor. Um, after the Soviet Union entered World War II in 1941, he joined the army as a volunteer at the age of 20. Um, his unit was captured within the first weeks or months of the war, I'm not sure, but very quickly. And he spent two years in German prisoner of war camps. Um, now, it was qu quite miraculous that he survived. He was a Jew. Um, and although pris German prisoner of war camps weren't, weren't quite as bad as Auschwitz, um, they, they basically shot any Jew that they caught uh, on sight. Um, luckily for him, he was fluent in German, so he was somehow able to hide his Jewish identity and eventually escape from the camp um, and cross back into Soviet territory. Um, when he crossed back into Soviet territory, he was arrested by Soviet counterintelligence agents who um, started investigating him as a German spy. Um, now, um, he, of course, reacted with absolute shock at the fact that he was being accused of spying for the Germans. After all, he had just spent two years barely surviving being exterminated as a Jew. And he told this to his investigator. And his investigator said something like, 
Jews don't escape the Germans. They get shot. If you really were a Jew, you would have been killed. Um, Klein was sentenced to be shot. Um, after waiting for weeks on death row, his sentence was commuted to 20 years of hard labor. Um, he spent five years in high isolation prisons before being sent to a camp in Varkuta, where he mined coal um, for four or five years. Um, in 1955, he was released. In 1966, he was finally cleared of all wrongdoing in his case, um, and he subsequently became a voice instructor at, at theatrical school in, in the north of Russia. Um, now, Klein's case really, I think, demonstrates well the, the, the brutal absurdity of this system. Um, here was a talented and patriotic young man who volunteered to die for his country, um, and who was captured by the Germans and managed to survive and escape, who was then rewarded with, with his patriotism by being sent for 20 years, sentenced first to execute it and then sent, sent um, to do hard labor. Um, this is just really only one example of the kind of absurd, absurdly horrific logic of the Stalinist penal system. Now, um, having talked a little bit about who the prisoners were, I'd like to turn for a moment to talk a little bit about daily life in the Gulag. Now, for prisoners in the Gulag, food was the most important part of daily life. Survival depended on it. Food in the camps was rationed and given to prisoners according to strict state regulations. In a cruel attempt to maximize the effectiveness of prisoner labor, the Gulag system gave food to prisoners on a differentiated basis. Those who worked harder and produced more were given more to eat. Those who did not meet the daily production requirements were given less to eat. Uh, these differentiated rations only strengthened the deadly mercilessness of the camp system. Um, let me give you an example. If a, a prisoner might arrive in camp in an already weakened state, um, she, was given, she would be given a job of stacking a certain number of logs per day. Um, coming into camp weak, she would not be able to stack the number of logs required. So the next day, she would be given a reduced ration, um, not a, which would be probably not enough calories for her even to keep up the level of strength that she had. Therefore, the next day, she would produce even less and then be given, consequently, even less food. So this was the kind of deadly cycle that often happened in the camps, and so prisoners could, could waste away in a, in a matter of days or weeks um, from, from this. Um, this. This image I'm showing you is a typical um, bread ration um, from the 1940s. Um, it, a typical bread ration would weigh about a pound and a half, um, this, depending on, on the camp, the time, and, and how much the prisoner produced, um, prisoners got almost all of their calories from bread. Um, and they would receive this at breakfast and in one chunk, and they would take it out with them often to work with them and, and to, to, to have their lunch. Um, next, next, prisoners would be given some kind of soup, um, which, was used, which was called in prisoner slang balanda. Um, now, how, depending on how well the camp was supplied with food, this could have either very little or zero nutritional value. Sometimes it was simply nothing more than boiled water. Um, uh, most prisoners would receive only liquid when it was handed out, as you can see in the sketch. Um, the luckiest prisoners, the most privileged ones, might be given the, the bottom of a, of a soup cauldron, where they were more likely to get fish parts or, or, or vegetables that might happen to be on the bottom and get, and get more food. Um, Finally, prisoners would usually receive um, some kind of some kind of porridge, um, which is which was called in camp lingo shrapnel. 
um, uh, talking about its, its kind of consistency and how easy it was to digest, um, sometimes often only a couple of spoonfuls a day. Um, now, living constantly in the cusp of starvation, food became the, ab the obsession and focus of the prisoners. They would lick their bowls and spoons clean at every meal and would fight over any scrap that they might find. The obsession with food became so great that prisoners would dream about it at night. Uh, one particular dream that Gulag survivors talk about is dream of getting the end of the bread loaf. Um, this may sound amazing, but um, this, this actually, you can see that this is the crusty end of the bread loaf, and it's called in Russian the garbushka. Um, and this was, prison, prisoners would literally dream about getting this as their bread ration because at the end of the loaf, it had the least moisture and therefore the most nutritional content. Um, and so literally some nights in barracks, as survivors will tell you, that every single person would be having the same dream. They would all be dreaming about getting the garbushka the next morning. Um, when I lived in 1998 with a gulag survivor in Moscow in the summer, um, at every meal he received the end of the loaf as a kind of, as a, as a sort of, as a, as, as a sort of sign of honor that he had been in the camps and that this was the most prized piece of the, each bread loaf. Prisoners lived in large rectangular camp compounds. Um, usually the, the area inside the camp compound was called the zone or zona in Russian. Um, you can see here, this is a depiction, this is a sketch also by Jacques Rassi um, of, of a typical camp compound. Um, now, you see here, um, the entire compound is surrounded by a wall and fencing um, with, with barbed wire around the tops. Um, there are guard towers at every corner, although usually there were actually more, there would be more of them around the outside. At each guard tower, there would be a guard posted at all hours of day and night uh, with machine guns who would shoot prisoners without warning who came too close to the wall and anyone who tried to escape or was accused of trying to escape. Um, you see here, um, there are, up here there are barracks, these long buildings where prisoners slept. Um, here we see camp latrines. Uh, there's a mess hall over here. Um, and there is, um, over here is an isolation prison where prisoners who were punished for, for whatever reason inside the camp would be sent into, would be, would be left in locked cells all day in these isolation prisons. So even within the camp and within the prison itself, there are various gradations of awfulness. Um, over here on the bottom is the, is the production zone where some of the prisoners would have worked. Um, now, I'd like to talk first about barracks. This is a sketch also by, by Jacques Rossi of, of a typical prisoner barracks. Um, these were often very long buildings. They might they might hold on average about 100 prisoners at a time. Um, prisoners generally slept um, either on beds, as you see over here. There are actually separate, separate beds or more often on long sleeping shelves, um, which you see these bodies crammed up against each other over here. Um, and they were, they were always stacked. So there were at least two levels of prisoners in, in, every, in every barracks, as you can imagine, the horrible living conditions. Um, now, this is a detailed drawing by Jacques Rossi also of what the kinds of, of, the, of what the good bedding was like. You see them in actually having separate beds here. Um, so I'll go back to this larger picture. Um, pr if prisoners were lucky, they would receive a straw-filled mattress, um, which they could sleep on, um, which were, or otherwise they would simply have to sleep on the bare wood. Um, they usually re received a, a blanket, which was often threadbare and usually had large numbers of lice in them. So it, it, they, weren't, they weren't much help. Um, the, 
there were no windows and the air inside the barracks were, was, was, was fetid. Um, some of the barracks were actually locked at night. Um, so prisoners, if they needed to go to the bathroom, had to use the parasha, um, which, was, which is a word that translates, I mean, excuse me, shit bucket, um, which, would be, which was inside the building um, all night long. Um, the, the temperature inside the barracks depended where the camp was in the season. In the summer, they were dreadfully hot or um, in the winter, they were terribly cold. Um, even though, in, for just to give an example, in Varkuta, the camp that I study, which is above the Arctic Circle, even though they would stoke the, the um, uh, excuse me, the, the, the they would have a fire going 24 hours a day, um, they would still, during, they would wake up in the morning and there would be a layer of ice on the walls, sometimes you know, several inches thick. And that's the kind of cold that we're dealing with here. Um, now, Prisoners' Day revolved around work. Um, although legally prisoners were obliged to get days off, they very rarely did. Um, they began each day waking up very early and proceeding to the mess hall for a quick breakfast. Then prisoners had to line up for roll call to make sure that everyone was accounted for. Roll call could take an hour or more. Um, the camp guards were, were notorious for being illiterate, poorly educated, and so being, being, very, being very difficult for them to actually count the number of prisoners, and when they got something wrong, they had to keep counting over and over again. In the meantime, the prisoners were standing outside often in, you know, minus 40 degrees Celsius temperatures. Um, finally, after roll call was over, um, they were either taken, sometimes they were worked inside the camp compound, but often they were taken outside to, to work sites, to mines, to factories, construction sites, um, sometimes miles away from the camps. And um, from there, they were marched in these long columns of prisoners, which were surrounded by guards uh, periodically who had machine guns and dogs um, to keep them in line. Um, as numerous prisoners recount in their memoirs, the guards would recite a regular warning, which became known in prisoner lingo as the guard's prayer. Um, the, a, a rough English translation is something like, attention prisoners, while en route, no straggling, no talking, no picking up anything off the ground, stepping to the left or to the right is considered an escape attempt. The escort will fire without warning. Understood? And the prisoners would be re required to answer, understood. Once they got to work, prisoners worked very long days, often up to 12 hours, in addition to the time they spent lining up and, and walking to the work site. Um, they might be chopping down trees, moving logs, mining gold, reinforcing mine shafts, digging trenches, or any of the other various functions of, of, of gulag labor. Um, in the middle of the day, the prisoners would get a short break for lunch. If they were lucky, uh, the guards might let them ha take periodic breaks to warm themselves by a fire and perhaps smoke a cigarette if they had tobacco, which was, which was of course, a commodity, a very rare commodity in the camps. Um, finally, after the workday was over, they would be marched back to the camp in the same way, line up for another roll call, which could take, again, over an hour, and then finally, they would, they would get to go to the mess hall, have their supper. Um, if, there was any, if they had any time or energy left, uh, sometimes prisoners would socialize with, with other prisoners they knew, but more often than not, they would simply fall into bed, fully clothed, um, and, and wake up the next morning. That, in a nutshell, was a typical day in the gulag. Um, this is how millions of people spent their lives over the course of years and even decades. So... I'd like to wrap up by talking a little bit about the legacy of the Gulag. Um, 
It would be nice if there were a simple resolution to the story. It would be nice if, as Mary reminded us, um, we could find, we could have a positive history of Russia, as Vladimir Putin likes to put it. Um, but unfortunately, um, these, the resolution of the story is very complicated. Um, his, in his, as history most often is. Um, Stalin died in March of 1953 of a brain hemorrhage, and over the course of the next several years, millions of prisoners were released, and most of the gulag system, much of the gulag system was dismantled. Um, many of the camps were closed down, although, as you see from this exhibit here from Param 36, many of them were not. Many of them continued to exist, and many of them still really exist as, as, as prisons to this day. Um, in 1956, Stalin's successor, who you see here, Nikita Khrushchev, um, who's famous for banging his, his um, shoe on the table at the United Nations, um, gave a speech um, that's come to be known as the secret speech, um, where he denounced, to some degree, Stalin's crimes um, and called for an end to mass terror as a, as a technique of governance in the Soviet Union. Um, but coming to terms with the Gulag was much more complicated than this. Um, the millions of former prisoners who were released from the Gulag still faced a complex task as they attempted to return to civilian life. Many wanted to return to families that no longer existed, to spouses who had remarried, to children who no longer remembered them. Also, there was widespread discrimination against former prisoners and made it difficult for them to find good jobs or housing wherever they chose to settle. Um, what is one of the cruel ironies of Soviet history that the places that were most welcoming to ex-prisoners were the places where the camps had once been, <laughs> uh, like the city that I study, Varkuta. Um, in these places, um, the industries that the prisoners had built continued to exist and continued to operate and continued to need labor. And now they were using free labor rather than prisoner labor, and so they signed prisoners on, <laughs> former prisoners on to continue um, after they had been released from the camps. And so oftentimes prisoners ended up working for years at the same jobs they had done as prisoners. <laughs> of course, you know, their situation was much improved. They, they didn't live in the camp. They had their own houses. They could live with families. They were paid. But um, it's you know, certainly a cruel irony of fate that they were stuck in these places. Um, and of course, it is important to remember that not all of the camps were closed down. Um, some, like Param 36, um, remained in use um, you know, until the 1980s. Um, but after the 1950s, the system of labor camps in the Soviet Union changed a great deal. Um, it ceased really to be a mass system that, that, that imprisoned you know, millions of sort of totally innocent people. It became, at, once, at one side, an instrument of, of repression against um, a, a relatively small group of political dissidents, um, like the camp at Param 36 especially held people who fought for human rights in the Soviet Union. On the other hand, the camp system became... Um, a forced labor system for, um, for violent criminals, um, you know, people who had, people who had you know, murderers and those kinds of things were, were, were kept, were held in the gulag system and actually continued to do the same kinds of things that the prisoners had before, live in, live in the same kinds of conditions and have the same kind of work. Um, the legacy of the gulag is still is complex and still runs very deeply through Russian society. Um, there are monuments to the, to the gulag throughout the Soviet Union, like the one you see here, which is um, in Kalima in northeastern Siberia. It's called the Mask of Soros. It's sort of hard to get 
idea of the scale of this monument by looking at it, but it's something like 50 feet high, and it sits on a, on a hill overlooking the city of Magadan in Kalima. Um, this is by a, by a, a Russian-American sculptor named Ernst Niazvesny. Um, then there are, of course, more simple monuments, like this one that's in Varkuta. Um, you see a kind of plaque and a column with and a, a rock with barbed wire around it overlooking, this is overlooking uh, a river bank in the city of Varkuta. Um, then there, of course, there are the ruins of the camps themselves, which continue to exist all over the Soviet Union. Um, this is a um, ruins of a barbed wire fence that, survived, that surrounded a, a camp uh, zone that I photographed um, about 20 miles outside of Varkuta. It's in the middle of the tundra, totally abandoned. Um, but you can still see, actually, in the site, um, ruins of the latrines and the barracks. It's all there. Um, wooden panels, even, from the buildings are still extant. Um, but this is, this is I think, the most poignant image of what I saw there. Um, I, this is I've taken in, in, in 2004, so the, the ruins are still very much around. Um, but I think, most importantly, the legacy of the Gulag remains in the former prisoners who are still alive and their families um, in Russia and the Soviet Union today. Um, Former prisoners like, like Zayara Vesiolaya, who is their pic these pictures of here, um, are still struggling to grapple with what happened to them and um, trying to bring um, the crimes of the Soviet regime to light and trying to make sense of their experiences in the Gulag. Um, and that is why I study the Gulag. Um, I think that it is only by trying to understand the lives of the people who experienced it um, can we really come to terms with what this horrible institution um, really meant. Uh, thank you all for listening, and I'd like to open it up for questions. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Um, um, the question was to talk about the, the transportation of prisoners to get to the camps. Um, and you're right. The, the conditions were absolutely inhuman. Um, you know, at best, um, one would be in a cattle car, <laughs> literally locked in with you know hundreds of other people, um, with no fresh air, n nowhere to go to the bathroom, um, often no food and no water. Um, there are stories about how how the prisoners would be deliberately given salty fish. To, so to make them thirsty and then no water and then locked in these things, locked in these, in these cattle cars. And the, distance in the distances in the Soviet Union are immense. Um, you know, if you were arrested, I mean, just to give an example, even of going to Varkuta, which was actually relatively close to Moscow, even though it's above the Arctic Circle. Um, currently, the tra train ride is about 40 hours, you know, about two days, but, you know, it would take about probably between one and two weeks um, in the 1940s to get there. Um, so... You're talking about living in absolutely human conditions for a very, very long period of time, and and there were, and if you were going to northeastern Siberia, I mean, your trip your trip took months, literally, and um, it involved all sorts of inhumanities, and so, and this only contributed to the to, to mortality in the camps because, of course, not only did people die on en route, but people arrived in the camps in such horrible, emaciated conditions that they were simply not it was not humanly possible for them to fulfill the kinds of jobs that they were expected to do. Yeah. 
I mean, that's a very good question. Um, you know, the short answer to that question would be to say that, you know, the Germany lost the Second World War, the Soviet Union won the Second World War. I mean, they were our allies. Um, and so, um, George Orwell wrote about this a lot um, in the 1940s, especially about how it was impossible to say anything negative about the Soviet Union. Um, well, first of all, I mean, they're very different things. You know, the, 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 Holo the, the Holocaust, the, the final solution, the elimination of Jews was very different from the Gulag. They're very different entities. But, I mean, you know, in, in Germany, a very complex and, and very drawn out process of denazification took place where crimes were discussed and Auschwitz became a museum. I mean, it was a very conscious process to come to terms with the crimes of the past. And almost none of this happened in Russia. Um, to have done so uh, would have would have would have involved well the Soviet leaders were afraid of it essentially they they opened up to some degree to talk about it I mean you know Solzhenitsyn published a, n a novel about the Gulag in the 19 in 1962 one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich but that was the end of it that was like the, and then they clamped down again um, you know people like Khrushchev were very afraid that talking about the Gulag would destabilize the whole country because um, this was I mean essentially this was this was what the system was based on. It was based on terror. Khrushchev himself, even though he denounced Stalin, you know, was personally responsible for signing the execution orders for you know, hundreds of thousands of people. So he, you know, his hands weren't clean either. So the Soviet Union never really came to terms with this. And, and as a result, um, and Russia hasn't really come to terms with it either in a sort of national scale. So as a result, you know, it's not one of those things that's really talked about, even though it was, even though it was absolutely ubiquitous. Well, that, that's a very good question. The, the, the question is about the role of the press in, in, the, in the West and in, in Russia at the time. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. Actually, there was quite a lot of interest in Soviet forced labor camps in the West um, in the early 1950s, actually. As prisoners began to be released, um, lots, there were lots of foreigners in the Gulag, and a lot of them made their way back to Europe. Um, and so, you know, for instance, British, prominent British newspapers in the middle of the 1950s published um, accounts written by prisoners about their, t about their life in the Gulag. But um, that, that more or less, that interest evaporated very quickly. Um, and so it really, there were, there were these periodic, um, periodic times when, it, when interest in the Gulag grew again, like when the Gulag Archipelago came out in the West in the early 1970s, and that was, of course, an international sensation and everyone bought the book, no one read it. But, um, but, it, but it put the gulag back into the public domain. Um, in Russia, um, there, you know, there were journalists involved in going to the camps um, in, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s and actually writing about, writing about what had happened there in a very, in a circumscribed, but in, in, a, but in a way that actually did talk about uh, the camps. But then there was a clampdown after uh, Khrushchev fell from power in 1964, and then it was really not spoken about until the 1980s when, when, when Gorbachev and Perestroika came in and they began to talk about it very openly. I mean, the, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I mean, of course, you know, the, the president of Russia is a former KGB agent um, and, uh, certain, and relies greatly on former secret police officers in his government and, and would, like to, would like to govern in that way. Um, but, I mean, there is no doubt in my mind that the number of people being arrested for political, um, 
for political so-called political crimes and things like that will will undoubtedly increase in the future. But the idea of a massive system like this ever taking place in Russia again, I find hard to believe. Um, one of the lessons that the Soviets learned, the lessons that, that even uh, some of Stalin's greatest executioners learned, was that it did not pay. Prisoner labor turned out to be enormously inefficient. Um, and so one of the main reasons why the Gulag camps were dismantled were not because the Soviet Union didn't want to rule by terror, but also simply because they realized that it was, in, that it was a waste of human life and it was a waste of resources. Um, so from an economic standpoint, they, they, would, they wouldn't do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was absolutely duped. Um, there, there. Yeah. There was actually he actually published a book about it, um, which you can you can find used. Um, I mean, it's not particularly a great read, but it's very interesting from the perspective of seeing exactly that this person was compl he was entirely duped. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, the the Soviets were. I mean, they they talked about the fact that they had camps in a very circumscribed way, but of course, the, we are using this we're using this to rehabilitate rehabilitate people. And, and bring them back into the working life and into the into the into the into the Soviet Union, um, in, and make them into model Soviet citizens. Whereas, in the op quite the opposite, they you know not only not only led to death and, and destruction, but they brutalized people and and um, really brought sort of the criminal world back into the back into the regular Soviet society because regular Soviet citizens of all kinds you know interacted with with career criminals. Okay. Um, the European Holocaust, the German the Hitler's Holocaust, which lasted maybe five, six years, uh, I think it was it was less in number, less amount of people killed than in the Soviet Union over I don't know how many the years Stalin and Khrushchev. Um, why is it? Why are we putting so much focus on the media and the school system? On the on Hitler's Holocaust, and not as much on the Russian Holocaust. And what can we do to to bring the gulag system and those types of things more into light? To you know, from sixth grade, okay. grade yeah. we're about the German Holocaust. Right? right. Well, I'll try and answer the two parts of that question, which is what what can we do? The second part was what can we do more to bring this to light? And the first question was a restatement of an earlier question about why um, why there why is there so much attention given to the Holocaust as opposed to the gulag? Um, you know, these are extraordinary. There are similarities between the Gulag and the Holocaust. There's no question. I mean, there's this, there's this, um, this very un, this horrible modern urge to, to take populations and excise them, eliminate them, exile them, move them from round to round. I mean, it happens everywhere. You know, ethnic cleansing and and genocide. Um, you know, but the Holocaust, you know, involved the deliberate annihilation of a people. Um, the the German camps Auschwitz were not work camps. I mean, the prisoners did do some form of work, but they were not 
They were not economically important to Germany. They were designed to kill people. They were factories of death, literally factories of death. Um, the gulag camps were not. At times, at times they were functionally the same thing. <laughs> I mean, prisoners would there wouldn't be enough food, and so prisoners would starve to death. They would be sent to to do to do impossible construction projects in in very isolated places, and many of them would die. But they were but they were not set up to uh, to annihilate human beings entirely. I mean, it happened along the way, which is of course one of the most horrible, banal parts of it. But but they but they're very different things. What can we do about the gulag? Um, I think actually there's a lot. I think there's a there's a growing interest in the gulag uh, in the United States right now and, and in the West in general. Things like this exhibit. Um, there's also an exhibit traveling around the United States that's been done by the National Park Service and Param 36. That's a, a very large exhibit about life in the camps. Um, there there actually is a there's a curriculum project being done in Boston um, to to come up with a gulag, curriculum about the gulag for high school students. Um, and I think that these are all really important efforts in order to bring this in order to bring this to light. And I hope this this will continue. Well, how many people died at the hands of Stalin? Is I mean, Stalin didn't personally do it, <laughs> right? But how many? I mean, I really can't hazard an estimate. I mean, it's in the millions, um, but. Um, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to determine, um, and it depends on the criteria that you use, um, to you know as to what what was deliberate, what was not. Why is it so easy? Then? I'm just I'm just asking. How, how can we be certain that six and twelve were from the German German Holocaust and that? Well, uh, the, yeah, yeah. The, the Russians were not as good at keeping records as the Germans. Um, also, you know, keep in mind that. You know the populations that were being eliminated were, were you know it's it's a distinct pop it's a they're distinctive populations in general right I mean so so when there were records that existed for you know when when such and such a town in Eastern Europe was rounded up into a ghetto there were there were records of the ghetto and there were records of the people being sent to the camp so it was it's it's much easier to come up with lists like that but I mean the, the gulag was such an immense institution that um, that it's I mean. Just to put it just to put it this way, in the 1950s, when Khrushchev was starting to talk, was denouncing the camps. They wanted to come up with numbers like this. They they had they had great difficulty. Even they themselves could not come up with very accurate figures for the number of people who had been killed because the record keeping was so poor. Uh, what I would I call them? The question was, I think, would I would I include you know the 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 exile of the Chechens and the Crimean Tatars as, as different from the Gulag, or a part of it? No, I That's, I'm sorry. Okay, so right, would I call that genocide? I mean, it's that I think that's very difficult to say. I mean. They weren't, it wasn't, they, there was no, you know, they didn't set out to eliminate these populations. They, they set, set out to move them. Now, in the process of moving them, they killed many of them through absolute neglect, and it's a horrible crime. You know, no question it's a crime. Um, the question is how you define genocide. 
and the question, you know, it's it's a it's a difficult question um, that I think is that people grapple with all the time. Is in I mean, if when one includes different acts as when one labels acts as genocide, you know, does it take away from the category as a whole? Um, I don't I, I don't think I can answer that question. That's, that's a that's a deep philosophical question. But certainly, um, you know, those kinds of the the, the resettlement so-called of you know of 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 millions of, of you know of nationalities like like German like Soviet Germans and and you know Crimean Tatars and and Chechens was a was a horrible crime. There's no question. Right. It's a very difficult question, and I mean, the intent was not to kill them. Was not was not to eliminate them entirely. The the intent was to isolate them um, and move them, and and that's really one. But but that's even in some ways more awful in that in that this simply this was the kind of I mean they sent these orders out you know orders on how to do this you know dry bureaucratic language this is how you ship these people this is how you feed them and and you know and they and they died by the scores because of this kind of inhuman treatment I mean, I'm not sure it was that orderly. I'm not sure there were rules about, you know, a degree of person, you know, the degree of, of guilt or the degree of the crime, you know, meant you go certain numbers of relations. Um, but certainly, what, I mean, the way that these cases were built against, I mean, someone would be accused of some awful crime and then their coworker would be called in and accused of the same thing. And when you were brought in to be interrogated, you had to name names. Or you were, you were you were often tortured into naming names, and when you name names, those people were drawn in as well, and it would draw in a larger and larger web, which could include, you know, your own family members. Um, you know, some people, of course, some some family members were not sent into were not sent to the camps or sent into exile. I mean, it was not it was not systematic. There, you know, there were, there are stories of people who continued to live in Moscow as their child, sibling, parent. Was, was in northeastern Siberia. You know, I mean, the famous cases were that Molotov's wife was in a camp. I mean, this is the second most powerful man in the Soviet Union, and his wife was in a prison camp. I mean, yeah, he, he, was, forced to, he was forced to divorce her, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, the, the family relations are really quite, quite awful. Does that answer your question? I would just uh, say as far as, like, the comparison... I think it's easy to compare like the Nazi ideology with just to eliminate the race of people, the Jewish people. Whereas with Stalin, the, uh, the whole Gulag system is set up as a labor 
can't blame design to murder people. Oh, well, some people died due to starvation and freezing no, that's right. There was, I mean, there was a great difference in the ideologies, no question. Um, I mean, after all, the Soviet Union was the most free country on the, on, on the planet, um, whereas Germany was intended to be free only for Germans. <laughs> Yeah, listen, yeah. Who was found poisoned? He was investigating for murder. It appears that that it remains the legacy seems to be continuing to be, especially for journalism in Russia. I don't know if you have any comments or thoughts on that. Well, I mean, sure, there's certainly nothing approximating an independent free press in Russia. I mean, I'm sorry. You said before something. You said the Soviet yeah, I, I, I realize having said that, uh, having said that, and of course this is being recorded, that that might, I, I, I meant that ironically. I mean, I mean, but the point is though that the Soviet Union was was intended to be and 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 presented itself as the freest country in the world. Um, um, of course, the reality was entirely different, but but that was its that was its intention. Well, I mean, you know, I, I'm not I'm not here to talk politics, um, but I mean, one I think one can only have that kind of view of of the, one can only idealize the Soviet Union while you know turning a blind eye to all kinds of awful things. Yeah. Right. Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Actually, I thought that 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 might come up today. Um, and, and of course, they're they're incredibly different things. But um, and you know you know. Dick Durbin is obviously using Gulag as a kind of rhetorical device to to kind of uh, to you know to 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 make to try and draw a kind of historical Guantanamo. Um, you know, but one you have to ask yourself, um, or Americans I think should be asking themselves, um, you know, what kind of country do we live in if we imprison people without trial, um, without any without any rights, without habeas corpus, without Freedom of speech or freedom of action, and um, you know certainly in that way, in that way there is some kind of parallel between the Gulag and Guantanamo.
I mean, I think that's a fair point about about the world turning a blind eye to homegrown to homegrown terror, um, as opposed to um, in, you know terror that crosses borders. Uh, I should also point out, however, that you know the Soviet Union did invade Poland in 1939 and did round up um, you know hundreds of thousands of Poles and sent many of them, in fact, to Varkuta um, and into the into the Russian North, and they subsequently released many of them. But I mean, this was you know this was an international phenomenon. Um, in fact, most of what we know about the Gulag, at least most of what we knew about the Gulag before, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, came from foreigners who had been prisoners in the Gulag. Um, so, um, you know, I would say again that it has to do more with the fact that the Soviet Union was an ally, and that the Soviet Union, I mean, went you know, 26 million Soviet citizens died in World War II, um, defeating Hitler, and so. Um, you know, clearly, the public opinion of the world decided that they wanted to give the, a lot of people wanted to give wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt because of this. Yeah, exactly. History is does tend to be written by the winners. Well, um, yeah, the, the yeah the, the question to repeat is about um, after the fall of after the fall of the Berlin Wall about and the increasing crime in in the Soviet Union. You know, how is the Soviet Union dealing? Uh, excuse me, how is Russia dealing with and the former Soviet Union dealing with criminality? You know, they are they locking them up and throwing them away the key, or is it being dealt with as a society? Is that Um, no, the, the the jail system is not better. Actually, it's much. It's um, it has expanded greatly. Um, I think the two countries in the world that have the largest percentage of their populations under lock and key are the United States and, and Russia. Um, it's become they, they're, they're, prisons are dreadfully underfunded. Um, prisoners are live in live in horrible conditions. Are very poorly fed. Um, tuberculosis runs rampant. Um, and AIDS also runs rampant. So, um, I mean, it's one of the, there certainly is, if, if there is a kind of, you know, gulag after the fall of the Soviet Union, I mean, this is indeed the, where, where it is, people, people being locked, you know, sent, sent to horrible prisons for, for, you know, for instance, very, very minor drug offenses, as they are in this country, um, you know, and being locked away in, you know, in, in really horrible conditions for, for a very, very long time. So the, the question is, could the could the gulag have helped the Soviet economy? Well, the answer to that question is, um, they well they tried. <laughs> I mean, the you know the 
especially in the late 1940s and early 1950s, there were concerted attempts to make the Soviet gulag more efficient. And, and to this day, many Russians will tell you, unfortunately, they'll, they'll tell you that, well, yes, there were some terrible things that happened under Stalin, but look at, but the gulag was built all kinds of things for this country. Look at what Stalin did for this country. He was a strong ruler. Russia needs a strong ruler. But, I mean, there was, there was simply no way that the gulag could have, could have um, been anything but an economic drain. Free labor, I think it's pretty much agreed, I'm sorry, excuse me, unfree labor, it's pretty, it's agreed all over the world is not, is not economically efficient. Um, Alan, I'd like to thank you so much. Oh, it's thank been you. a truly amazing experience for all of us. I've really enjoyed the, uh, the wonderful questions that we've had. And thank you for having me. Better answers, wonderful answers. And I'd like to present you with a small, oh. a small gift from Marine Valley. And, uh, and thank you again very much for your thank you. thank you all for coming. I don't know. You're fine. You're fine. I'd also like to encourage all of you. The, we, obviously, the exhibit, as Alan mentioned earlier, please take a look at this exhibit here. We obviously have it pushed back here because of the chairs in the middle, but I would encourage you to look, take a look at all the panels, as well as there's a, um, a brief documentary. Uh, there's a DVD player right over there on the corner, um, and if you, you, you can listen to it. It's only 10 minutes long, um, and it highlights the, the uh, Perm 36 camp. They're still struggling at Perm 36 to, to make this a viable museum. They're working really hard. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.